0: Oh, Christiana gets mad at us if it's over an hour it has to be less than an hour today
1: I'm not I, mean, I, you know, I think she likes it but really. no, you know, no, she no, no, doesn't want no.
0: I'm relying on you we've got to be brief okay less than an hour starting now Clay let's go Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett-Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about the state of ambition from businesses on climate action. We speak to Alan Jope, CEO of Unilever, and we have music from Icy Rivers. Thanks for being here. Right, to business. We're not messing around today. Christiana, last week you said that you didn't want these podcasts to be more than an hour. Message and challenge received. M- message and challenge received, yeah, yeah, and yeah, exactly. you have to proceed okay, now. Yeah. So agenda point one. That especially, I've
2: been- especially today, you have to be very, very attentive to my wishes and desires. It's Do you your know birthday! Why? Happy
1: <laughs>
0: birthday, birthday to you. you. Okay,
3: now hold on. Do you,
0: know,
2: do you know how funny this is? Clay, is this our 64th episode? Yes. And it's also my 64th
0: birthday. Really? <laughs> Really, your happy well, birthday, and that call, doesn't that call for when I get older? I'm I'm losing my probably head not that one. Yeah. That's right.
1: Many years.
0: <laughs> I... Happy birthday! Thank happy you, birthday. thank you, thank you, Christiana! Happy birthday! How wonderful! How are you spending your day?
2: I am going to be traveling back to the beach because I haven't been there in weeks. And I miss my walks on the beach.
0: By the beach, you mean, of course, the tropical paradise where you normally live in the exactly. beautiful coast. Which country or, yes, is that? Yes, Which yes, country I is that? that? I, I, Costa Rica. I, didn't, I didn't want to make you jealous
2: again. <laughs> so I'm so trying to downplay the beauty.
0: How wonderful. I'm very glad that you will be there with friends and family having a lovely time on the beach. Happy birthday. If I may thank speak you. on behalf of all of our listeners, I would like to wish you
1: a very happy birthday, Christian.
2: Well, thank you very much. But since we're committed to doing an episode that is under an hour, let's move on.
0: Oh, God, absolutely. Right, let's move yeah, on. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah. Tom, quick, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hurry, wait, hurry, wait. hurry. Wait, wait. No, so wait. I came with a question this week. Um, the world has been massively distracted by COVID over the course of the last six months, or I can't remember how long it was, but it feels like ages. Does that mean that businesses have stopped taking action on climate, stop being ambitious and stepping up to do more because we know it's so critical. What do you guys think? What have you found out about that issue? Well,
4: Paul, um,
1: you
0: run the world's largest platform for corporate disclosure. Surely you've got an insight.
4: Uh,
1: my, my 400 colleagues run the largest platform for corporate disclosure <laughs> and I have the privilege to work alongside them and they even let me do a podcast with you um, when I probably ought to be writing a funding proposal or some such. But anyway, um, look, there have been fantastic actions taken by corporations on COVID. And, you know, we've looked at examples from huge companies um, like Apple and Microsoft, but also companies Cisco, BlackRock, Coca-Cola. There are loads of them. Um, but I, I don't think the fact that corporations take that kind of action on on COVID means that they're going to stop taking action on climate change. And I'll give you one example of that. Um you will be familiar with the um, inspiring United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the uh, one of the world's most um, delicious organizations. And it has <laughs> been um, looking after a campaign called Race to Zero in yes. partnership with uh, Nigel Topping, our climate champion, and his colleagues. And they have actually managed to get, and can you believe this, uh, or at least they've managed to coordinate or facilitate 995 companies uh, to participate in committing to getting to net zero emissions by 2050. And I mean, if you know, if just, I'm looking down this list, 995 companies, Acciona, um, this is just, I mean, the A's at the moment, uh, AES, um, Aircorp, uh,
0: Aldo Group, um, Allbirds, is this the beginning of a list of 995 names? Because if it is, Ambev. maybe we have, oh, yeah, 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 okay. We're not We've got an hour. One That's hour limit. A, <laughs> Sola, Anko. Uh, well, maybe you could jump to the bees I and tell us know. about BP because they did something pretty pretty chunky this week, didn't they? Well, BP. I mean,
1: um, seeing as I have the mic and uh, nobody seems to be interrupting me, yeah, BP <laughs> did something absolutely extraordinary and inspiring and just. That's completely changed um I believe industry in in many regards. They have announced that they are increasing their low carbon investments tenfold to five billion annually whilst resu- reducing their oil and gas production by forty percent over the next decade. Now wow. isn't that an absolutely
0: extraordinary action by an oil and gas major? Now, and what was interesting about that, because I saw that, and I think that the amazing thing about that was they announced that, they announced a cut in dividend, so clearly a major refocus of corporate strategy on a different kind of future, major cut in production and reinvestment into, um, into renewables, as you said, and their share price went up by 8%. <laughs> clearly, the market knows that this is the right move that's necessary. What do you think of that, Christiana?
2: Yeah, cut in dividend is highly unusual for these companies, yeah. right? Uh, they do everything to uh, to guarantee their dividend payments. And um, I was I was struck. Do you remember when StatOil, the Norwegian oil and gas company, changed its name to Equinor? Yeah.
1: yeah now what yeah. they
2: did is they changed their name. BP is not changing its name, it's changing its identity, (laughs) which goes much farther than changing its name, because we can no longer speak of BP as an oil and gas company. They have now self-proclaimed themselves to be an international, an integrated energy company, which is a complete transformation of their identity. And one, frankly, that we've been speaking about for oil and gas sector for a long time. They have... If they get on the, if they get with the program and they understand where we have to go this century, they have a huge future in store for them because we will always be consuming energy and we will be consuming more energy given that we will have been having more population. So if they are able, as BP has been able to do so, to de-link their identity and their business model, their core business model, from what they extract from the uh, from the bottom of the ocean and from the bottom of uh, of, of land, um, oil and gas, and actually look up toward sun and wind and hydro. Well, that's a completely different company. And I'm sure that they're not just changing the sources from which they will generate energy. They're actually going to be looking at how do you optimize the relationship between supply and demand of energy. Mm. That's what the integrated energy company is going to be about. So it's very exciting. And it's doubly exciting that this announcement comes during post-COVID crisis um perhaps not surprising since mm. they know that demand is going to be going down right we we know that demand has gone down hugely um and during covid and they understand that it's not going to be coming back very uh certainly not to the previous levels and that the dem- the demand that does come back is a demand for cleaner energy it's not just less demand it's a demand for much higher quality energy. And the fact that they're getting in front of that is actually uh, a a testament to the leadership of the new CEO who we should get on this podcast. We
0: should get on this podcast. That's a very good idea.
1: That's a very good idea. By the way, I just want something I have to say about oil and gas. I mean, you know, sometimes people say some kind of technologies are a kind of like dinosaur technology. And what they mean is it became extinct like the dinosaurs. But the thing about oil and gas is it actually is dinosaurs. I mean, it's made of dinosaurs. So it's like, right. it's dinosaur technology and it actually is also a dinosaur technology,
0: if you take my point. <laughs> it's a dinosaur technology and a technology of dinosaurs. Very nice.
1: That's perfectly uh, put. In yeah.
0: contradistinction. <laughs> in, or, or not contradistinction, in samey, samey, same In sharp contradistinction. Um, right, and the other data point that I'm, you know, I suppose it's anecdotal in a way, but we haven't really talked in much detail about this podcast, but we will more in the future. One of the things that Christiana and I spend a good chunk of our day jobs on is working with Amazon. So we work very closely with Amazon with the climate pledge that they created that was created by Jeff Bezos in September 2019, which is a commitment to get to net zero by 2040, 10 years earlier than the Paris Agreement. And so I spend a good chunk of my days calling companies up, understanding where their commitments are and encouraging them to go further and faster and just anecdotally spending time doing that. There was a moment in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic right in the heart of it some months ago where everybody was distracted, no one wanted to talk about this, but now it does seem to be front and centre again. People are really keen to talk, they really understand that many of their stakeholders want them to go further and faster, whether that's citizens or consumers, whether it's investors, supply chain companies, governments. So we're seeing real appetite and interest in that. And we'll delve more into that in further, in future episodes about how the Climate Pledge is working. But it's been really encouraging to me. You know, i got one little
1: story to share, which is the... Um yeah, uh, you, you, you know our former colleague Zoe that we used to work with, um, who, who works now at Mission Twenty Twenty. But she, she first moved to to uh, New York um, very long time ago and started was communicating with U.S. corporations trying to get them to report on their greenhouse gas emissions. And I said to her, "What are these corporations like?" I mean, I've, I you know I've been contacting corporations myself, but I wanted to get her perspective because she was spending a long de- time doing it. And do you know what she said? She said they're as different as people. Mm. I always remember that. So let's just remember that, you know, when we're thinking because about these- Because they're
2: made up of people.
1: There you go. But in different configurations
0: and with different cultures. Now, I'm aware of time. Clay, how are we doing?
3: Uh, if I say you're doing well, are you just going to keep going? <laughs> or if I say- I think, I, I think should we just doing... like
0: move on? Because the interview is 27 minutes long, right? So then we need to do a wrap up at the end and play the song. So if we're serious about the hour thing, right. we got to crack on.
3: Yeah, we're we're at about 11 minutes. Okay. So- We have all the the time time in the world. Um, Well, maybe why don't we go to the interview
0: now anyway? Then we can do more of a wrap up afterwards. Unless there's any other points anyone wants to make before we pivot? I I keep talking every time. Christiana looks like she wants to talk, but you don't want to talk.
3: It is Christiana's birthday, so she gets to decide.
2: Move to the interview.
0: Okay, so we are now going to pivot to this fantastic interview that we we conducted just the other day with the new, relatively new still, CEO of Unilever, Alan Jope. So this is just such an interesting conversation because Alan, of course, has come in into the position that Paul Pullman was previously in as CEO of Unilever. And Paul has probably been, for the last five years, the best known person, business leader on climate action. So, Alan, and on
2: all the SDGs, and on all the
0: SDGs, you're absolutely right. So, what we were particularly interested to talk to Alan because one of the things that plagues business action on climate change is that it can become the pet issue of a CEO. And then, when that CEO moves on, the business no longer maintains its leadership position on climate. But Alan has come in and doubled down. So he has had a long career at Unilever and in business at a senior level. He joined Unilever um, in the UK in 1985. He worked in North America for 14 years, in Asia for 13 years. He's fi- formerly the CEO of of Unilever's personal care business from 2014 and remained as president of that when it changed the beauty and personal care. He's had this deep experience of Unilever over many years. So, um, and interestingly, he's from Glasgow, where the negotiations are going to take place next year. So we'll also have to ask him about that. Glasgow smiles better and a fantastic
1: accent people have in Glasgow. <laughs> Let's hear it.
2: Alan, um... For those who know you, it's not surprising, but it still is unusual, I must say, that a new CEO comes in and not only doesn't veer the company in a different direction, but actually deepens the commitment of a company the size of yours into all of these incredibly challenging issues. So we we wanted to invite, you know, a frank conversation with you because it must not have been easy to take over the steering of this boat that was already going at full force. Um, And and then you did it with such grace and, you know, take over the the steering wheel and at the same time, uh, keep the direction, but deepen the commitment. How did you do that?
4: Well, Christiana, let me not bore people with too much background information on Unilever, other than to say we're a big consumer products company selling everything Indeed. Uh, Indeed. around the world from soap to ice cream um, in just about every country uh, around the world. Um, the important thing to understand is that Unilever's commitment to trying to do business the right way is about 120 years old. Um, mm. The founder of the founders of the legacy businesses that came together to form Unilever all had purpose in their soul. Hmm. Um, Take one of of the founders is this guy, uh, William Lever. He um, built decent housing for his workers. It was called a model village, and it's still there right now. It's beautiful little um, brick buildings around the factory area in Port Sunlight. He invented pensions for his workers. When his workers' kids had a birthday, he would send each of them a book and he would maintain a very careful library of the books that they received so that no child in the same family ever received the same book so that the whole family could build up uh, a library and I think the one that got to me when I heard about it was when his workers had to go off and fight in the first world war not only did he hold their jobs open for them which was unusual at the time he paid their wages to their families for the whole time that they were off fighting so he defined the purpose of the firm remember this is in about 1870, he defined the purpose of the firm as being to make cleanliness commonplace and lessen the load for women. So he was a feminist back at the end of the 1800s. And
2: lessen the load for women. women.
4: Yeah, because they bore the brunt of household chores back then, just as they unfortunately do today. Now, What that says, I think, is that trying to do business the right way, so call it purposeful business, sustainable business, responsible business, is very deep in our company's DNA. Sure. Um, But it took my predecessor, the absolutely brilliant Paul Polman, to resurrect the true spirit of this about 10 years ago when he oversaw the development of something called the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And uh, that really propelled. There was a huge accelerator of us putting social and environmental responsibility at the centre of the company. Uh, then fast forward to the beginning of last year. By the way, um, I still consider myself a very rookie CEO. Um, I'm a, <laughs> very much a, a work in progress. But with my leadership team, we we identified um, some areas that we wanted to take things forward. Um, And I think if I just quickly call out three, the first is up until earlier this year, we had two strategies. We had a business strategy and we had a sustainability strategy and we felt that wasn't right. So we spent Mm. a year working on how do we totally integrate uh, the business strategy and the sustainability strategy so they coexist and one builds and feeds on the other. The second thing we wanted to do was increase the extent to which our responsible practices contributing to society, contributing to the environment, lived in our brands and not just at a corporate level. Um, So that every brand, every time a consumer made a choice to choose a Unilever brand, they were taking a small action that would contribute to, I don't want to sound too idealistic, but a slightly better world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the third was uh, to distribute the leadership. I do feel my predecessor took on too much on his own shoulders, and I've asked all the everyone in Unilever actually to to lead for sustainability, so that we have a multiplier effect of uh, thirteen people on the leadership team and one hundred and fifty thousand employees all advocating for sustainability or responsible business. So. This is a very long tradition in Unilever. My predecessor did an absolutely brilliant job. And I think we're clear on how we want to take it forward and accelerate things.
2: Thank you for giving us that history um, because it, it really puts things into, uh, into the context of your legacy and your deep roots. I'm taken by in your overview, Alan, the complexity of this operation most corporations have one or two or three or 10 products that they put out under one brand and and you have how many brands 400 500 do you even know how many brands you have
4: let let me dodge the question and say about about 400 <laughs>
2: About 400 brands. So, and and then that many employees, as you say, and as well as your partners in business. So the complexity of, um, A, imbuing all of this incredible universe with a commitment to sustainability and to active leadership Um, And all of these brands, right, that you are, I'm assuming, putting through your own filter of are they really uh, contributing to sustainability um, in each of them in their different ways. This is an incredibly complex operation that is both educational, exemplary for other companies, but goes sizably beyond what other companies need to look at. Um, And then on top of that, as though that weren't complex enough, then we're all catapulted into COVID reality. So, um, you know, the complexity of the leadership role that you have right now is definitely not to be underestimated. How are you... um, How are you feeling about that as um, you you called yourself a a rookie CEO? How does a rookie CEO address that kind of a complexity with so many moving parts at the same time?
4: Well, um, I think the short answer is you need to bring some organizing principles. Um, uh, We are a a complex business um, because we've got 150,000 people on the payroll. We've got 3 million people who work for Unilever every day exclusively when you include Uh, our extended value chain. Hmm. Uh, We do business in every single country in the world. There's not a country in the world where you can't buy Unilever products. In fact, um, about 2.5 billion people a day use a Unilever product. Um, And so, yes, we are complex. Um, But uh, let me be very clear, the people who really run Unilever Um, are not, it's not me who runs Unilever, it's the thousands of women and men who are making decisions close to our customers and close to consumers every single day. And we have a generation who have joined Unilever as, an, as a choice to join a purposeful company your earlier question about could I have changed direction no chance there would have been a mass revolution <laughs> if I would have tried to sort of de de sustainability by uh, Unilever so that's the that's that there's a huge momentum in the in the women and men uh, in the company now, The current context is unbelievably difficult because we've got at least five crises piled up on top of each other. We've got a biological crisis um, and we have to remember we're living in a time of human tragedy right now. Uh, We were discussing before we started uh, recording the show that uh, there's been 14 members of the Unilever team have died of coronavirus so far. Mm. Um, And it's not often I see tears in our boardroom, but there's been tears in our boardroom on a kind of weekly basis uh, at the moment. And it's terrible. And it's a reminder of what we're dealing with. But that's just the biological crisis. Then there's the social crisis called lockdown, just everybody being in their homes, massive changes in consumption patterns. It won't surprise you, our business that supplies food to restaurants or ice cream to tourists has collapsed, but our business that provides hand cleanliness or surface cleanliness or bleaches is through the roof, and they more or less offset, but what an adjustment that is. Uh, So that's the second crisis, the sort of changing living styles. Then the third crisis is the economic crisis that's just coming upon us and it hasn't really hit yet. Uh, unfortunately, the world is in for a period of recession, and we're having to adjust to that um, uh, in real time. Then on top of that, you have a racial justice crisis, which has particularly affected the world in, the, in North America, but it's a global issue for sure. And then meanwhile running in the background, there's a climate crisis that's not going away. And so there's there's these kind of crisis on crisis. And uh, with this big complicated business, and a multi-layered crisis, how do we organize to address that? And it goes back to our business model. We believe in a multi-stakeholder business model. Um, and what you know that's a fancy jargon. Mm. What does it mean? It means we believe that if we look after our employees, and we look after our customers, and we look after our business partners, and we do the right thing for society, and we try to take care of the planet, at the end of all of that, then the shareholder will be well rewarded. And the rewards for the shareholder are an outcome of looking after the other stakeholders. And in fact, it's not a trade-off. We believe that the the better job we do with the other stakeholders, the better the shareholder will be rewarded. So Mm -hmm. it's not a compromise. Hmm. And what I'm going to say now is pure post-rationalization. Um, when the get
2: ready when the,
4: <laughs> when the biological crisis hit our first reflex was to look after our people. Hmm. so yeah. we went uh, we went into a couple of examples. We went into a global indefinite uh, work from home order uh, on the 13th of March for all 50,000 office based workers just and it seemed like an overreaction at the time but now it's of course perfectly normal. We committed that um, nobody needs to worry about their livelihood um, for several months. So we said everyone will be paid and looked after, including, by the way, the contractors, the, the people who guard our offices and work in the cafeterias and clean the floors. We said we would look after their income for uh, at least through to the end of June.
2: In, in the tradition, Alan, very interesting, in the tradition of Mr. Lever when his people went off to war, right? A very mm. interesting parallel there.
4: And and we took huge steps, obviously, to keep the people in our factories uh, safe. Um, It's not pleasant working in a factory wearing uh, PPEs all day at all, but nevertheless, we insisted on it. So our first reflex was look after the people. The second was look after the community. So we immediately Mm -hmm. made a pledge to donate 100 million euros worth of um, hand sanitizers, hand hygiene products, food, et cetera. Then very shortly after that, we said, you know what, our small suppliers are going to run out of cash. So we extended credit. We used 500 million euros on our balance sheet to, as early payment to small suppliers so that they could stay in business. And then we started to say, you know what, we need to worry about our, uh, our ability to run our supply chain. And then we started worrying about collecting cash. And then we started saying, oh, demand patterns are changing with customers and it was only afterwards we realised that basically we had marched through our multi-stakeholder model and used our instincts in the, the correct sequence. So the first sequence was our people. The second sequence was community. Then supply. Then cost and cash. Um, and and that served to organise our work in the middle of all this complexity.
1: Hmm. So, so can I can I ask actually two questions? But I am going to do them one at a time, if I may. The first one is is about. First of all, I salute the extraordinary um, coherence of your response to the crisis. It's very moving and I love the lineage of the company. you know, with regard to inequality that Christiana points out underpins all of these problems and exacerbates them, there has been a crisis. Uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has been enormous. You yourselves have used some of your power uh, in terms of advertising budgets, for example, to, uh, you know, warn some of your partners like Facebook. Is that correct? And, and how, how, you know, that's a, a very innovative way for you to play your part in society. How do, how, how's, how, how is that feeling?
4: You know, on most of these tricky issues, uh, we like to uh, follow a model of first is get our own house in order, then worry about um, the value chain that we operate in, or, or our suppliers, are they operating to a high standard, and only then worry about our impact on society through our brands, etc. cetera. And um, I just want to give the caveat that we are not finished on the journey of becoming a fully inclusive organization that's representative of the communities we do business in. Um, So uh, we've got work still to do to get our own house in order. However, we have a choice on where we advertise our brands. And we felt and feel that the level of divisiveness and hate speech that we were seeing on some of the, uh, particularly the social media platforms, was creating an environment that we wouldn't want our brands to be part of and there was a growing movement to come off facebook for a month Um, but we decided we didn't want to jump on that bandwagon and rather we would set our own course so we made the choice to uh, come off of a number of social media platforms in the us for six months so we're actually off for the whole of the rest of this year and the reason is uh, we want to give the platforms time to take meaningful action and not do mm-hmm. something that's just tokenism. And if I'm honest, also that'll take us through the political uh, turmoil of the upcoming elections in the US, which we think are likely to create a highly toxic environment on, yes. uh, on social media. Yeah. And we just don't want our, you know, our brands are simple products that offer simple benefits and we don't want them showing up in that, in that context. Mm. And maybe just to, you know, back of, I I don't like to characterize it as a boycott. It was more just making sure that our brands were showing up in the right place.
1: Mm -hmm. Very, very thoughtful answer. Thank you. So my my second final little question, and it's, it's a, you know, we've got thousands, many, many thousands of listeners. It's a great privilege. Many of them are in business or or starting businesses, and to the degree to which across all of your brands, you've got so much experience of how to make a sustainable business plan. Is it about? Uh, is it about marketing? Is it about? It? If you're if you're approaching um, the challenge of of building business for good from your Brilliant experience. What are the, just the, the, the two or three high-level things people should think about when they're trying to change their business into a, a purpose-led business that leaves the world in a better place than, than we found it?
4: So the first thing is a change in mindset um, that there is absolutely no trade-off between responsible business and strong business performance. Um, so we spent many years trying to understand what's the business case For sustainability. And it's absolutely there in our face. Our brands that operate on purposeful platforms are growing faster than the rest of the brands in the portfolio. We think we've taken out 800 million euros of cost. uh, That's a billion dollars of cost uh, through responsible sourcing and sustainable sourcing. We know it has triggered innovation. We know it has uh, reduced risk in our supply chain. Um, there's no successful Unilever in an unsuccessful planet. And so the more we can do sustainable sourcing, um, the, the better our business is. And last, but by no means least, some have already mentioned is our employees. It's an absolute magnet for talent. Um, we have a graduate recruitment program in 54 countries around the world. We're employer of choice in our sector in 52 out of 54 countries. And that was 17 countries just a few years ago. So um, we have this profound belief that the more we move our business onto sustainable footing, the better the performance will be. And the final point is it must not be just a bolted on Mm. piece of marketing activity. We don't use Mm. the word corporate social responsibility because that implies that it's something that is just slapped on top of um, your existing operations. And, you know, one of our, kind Of secrets that we talk about openly, but not too many people seem to copy is brand say is different from brand do. Now, what do I mean by that? The reason why Dove can talk about girls' self-esteem is because we've taught 35 million girls one-to-one, a one-hour class that shifts their perception on body image. The reason why Life Boy can talk about saving lives of, of kids from preventable illness is because we've now taught a billion people proper hand washing techniques. The reason why domestics can talk about a campaign for decent sanitation and hygiene everywhere is because we've put 18 million toilets into homes that wouldn't otherwise have them, mainly in India. And it's those actions on the ground that give you yep. the permission hmm. to talk with authenticity about what your brand stands for. Hmm. And too many brands talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Alan, Mm -hmm. I I love that. And I love also that you talk about mindset as this sort of like basis to change your mindset and change your set of expectations in terms of what's possible. The book Christiana and I wrote, The Future We Choose, we base all of that in terms of how we face this challenge has to be based on a shift of mindset that infuses all the action that you then take with meaning and you go in a different direction. So I love that. And I just connect that to something you said earlier, which is that if you'd come into Unilever and tried to sort of de-sustainability you know take that away you'd have faced a revolution right because the mindset had shifted and they identified with being part of a company that was doing the right thing and that had values at its core so that's very hopeful because that suggests this is a one way street as companies go down on this road and it becomes embedded in the culture and a mindset shift they won't they won't go back but where does that take you next? Because the interesting thing about that is that always has to kind of go further and go deeper and, you know, keep moving further forward and keep pressing the boundaries. So as you sort of look forward yeah. in this world of climate change, sustainability, inequality, where do you hope Unilever goes next?
4: So, uh, Tom, I uh, I think that we are at a little bit of a tipping point mm. on um, particularly, let's just focus on climate change. It's a important area. It's an area you guys are real experts in. But there are significant headwinds at the moment, Um, the low cost of fossil fuels, uh, perverse government policies that subsidize and incentivize uh, dirty energy, Um, cheap, now cheap uh, hydrocarbon based petrochemicals, the empty coffers in many treasuries where people are panicking about short term costs of shifting systems towards green systems. You know, you could, you could at this moment, um, throw in the towel and fortunately we are inspired by the tailwinds and mm. the tail, the single biggest tailwind is the energy of young people. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we take absolute inspiration that, you know, for a, for a generation has been told, be careful, there's a pandemic coming and us grown ups ignored it. And now look where we are. And it's absolutely incontrovertible now that climate change is well, you know, well on its way. And uh, frankly, we've just not taken enough action. And I don't think young people are going to tolerate that. And I think we're going to get driven hard. Uh, and we're very inspired. And so, you know, three weeks ago, we made a series of very big commitments around climate change. Um, yeah. We're already using 100% uh, sustainably sourced electricity across all of our operations, but we want the whole company. Uh, to be climate neutral by 2039. We announced that we're setting up a 1 billion euro fund to invest, uh, for our brands to invest in uh, climate positive projects and nature positive projects. We've introduced a uh, generative agricultural policy. Uh, We've committed to putting the carbon footprints on all of our products and we've asked all of our suppliers to start putting the carbon uh, footprint of the products they're supplying to us. So, look, business can, uh, we can take big action. um, And I think the wind beneath our sails is the energy and impetus of young people. And we will not be distracted from addressing climate change. Love it. Thank
2: well, that's uh very heartening and inspiring to uh to hear, Alan. Um and as we sadly wrap up, Alan, you know, this podcast is called Outrage and Optimism, because we believe that we have to be outraged about what we haven't done yet, uh, uh and yet at the same time optimistic about what we're doing and what we can do. So at the end, we usually ask our uh our guests to put yourself somewhere on that gamut, on that range um, between outrage and optimistic, uh, especially now in the face of all of these compounding and converging crises, where where, where would you put yourself?
4: Well, I'll pick two things on different ends of the spectrum. I am okay. outraged um, at the mismatch between um, the scientific evidence of where we are in this d- disease progression hmm. and the political lack of leadership that's encouraging opening up far too quickly and many more people are going to die because of popular politics rather than following uh, uh the science that sits science. behind this disease and i am outraged at that um but i'm highly optimistic um about a world that is increasingly going to be led by young people
0: yeah ah
4: oh,
2: wonderful <laughs> wonderful Love it. alan thank you so much thank you for taking the time thank you for uh Letting us peek into both your head and your soul—that was really quite an honor. Thank you You're very, very, welcome. very much. Thank you for having me. It's
4: been a privilege. Thanks, Alan. Great to talk to you. Bye, you. bye, Alan. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: How how amazing to get the chance to sit down with Alan and hear how things are going in Unilever and 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 how he's stepping up. I mean, I hadn't quite you know, just thought through the reality of running a business in this time of COVID. And of course, there's all this personal tragedy and the fact that actually individuals are being affected by this. And I thought that it was very moving the way he talked about how that's affecting the board and how they're thinking it through. So, um, but how, what did you guys think? What did you leave the conversation with?
1: I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm just so excited at this notion of uh you know a pretty large business you know serving literally billions of customers having purpose um written into what they do and um you know i really admire them for for going all in and doing it across the whole portfolio and saying this is what our company is completely about and the idea that they can attract uh, you know better talent and um and and you know and the, and the fact that maybe it comes from a particular root that it that, that you know there's still some of the founding spirit, and and great brands like Ben and Jerry's have joined, and I'm sure that you know their, their kind of complex DNA I believe has now uh, a will to good, and that mm. I find tremendously exciting.
2: I was um I, I was really impacted by the story he told of the legacy of Unilever, over a hundred years old, yeah. and how. One of the founders, Mr. Lieber, uh, way back when was, from today's perspective, quite a pioneer in the SDGs, Uh, really devoting his company to cleanliness, i.e. health, SDG, and to um, making everyday life easier for women, i.e. empowering women, another SDG. I mean, it's pretty impressive to uh, to see companies that have such long, long, deep roots into not just doing well, but doing good. But it also made me think of the following. I wonder how the challenge of moving towards sustainability, including climate, uh, is different for large companies than for small companies. Because what well, we have heard from the likes of Microsoft going to be climate neutral by 2030. Apple, just a few weeks ago, going to be climate neutral by 2030. Amazon launching their climate pledge to be climate neutral by 2040 and inviting other companies to come along as Tom has told us. And then BP that we just spoke about, right? What do these all have in common? They're all mammoth companies. So my question is, is there a competitive advantage? Is there a legacy advantage? Is there a public exposure advantage? Is there um, an advantage to positioning because you want to get the best and the brightest brains? Are all of those advantages being harvested by large companies? And can they be harvested by small and medium enterprise or do small and medium enterprise have other advantages that they could take that they could take uh, on board now because they're smaller they're more flexible have either of you thought about this or talked to any small and medium enterprise ceos i i must admit to my shame that i tend to talk to ceos of large companies and not too small and medium, so there there you go. and a lagoon identified
1: well, um actually, you know when I want to talk to um to, to the people running these these small enterprises, i I, I look in the mirror and I, and I talk to myself because <laughs> I, I have a little insulation company for for ten years, and okay uh, for, so for example, tell us what do you tell yourself? congratulations uh, no no um it, ha- it hasn't gone completely uh, as as one might hope um and you know i have actually lovely colleagues who've been working really hard for a decade um and i think what what when you were talking Christiane, i, I noticed you know my kind of heart being ripped open uh, again it's not just massive attack that achieves that my thesis has been probably for 20 years, that, that, that the kind of sustainability marketing, like people want to buy the solutions. They don't want to buy the problems. There is a definition of marketing that says marketing is giving people what they want. So, you know, there should be, it should be like easy to say we're the kind of, you know, we're the solution to your climate change problems, buy from us. But actually, you know, I've, 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 you know, I've discovered that some of the most successful brands in the world don't kind of uh, major on that. You know, you don't tend to see, uh tesla advertising at all to be honest with you but but but, you know when tesla talk they don't really present themselves for example as a climate change company and yet you know the electrification of vehicles is thought to be one of the most important parts of climate change i myself find it very difficult i've talked to people at unilever many times lots of different people uh, at all levels like to what degree can you put sustainability into the marketing of the products and, and and achieve certain goals but what i would tell you is that things for um the little insulation company uh, that I, I work at, um, Mitchell and Dickinson. If you want to get your home insulated um, in
0: the UK, and we don't work anywhere uh, else. So. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not I, And I've had my windows done by Mitchell and Dickinson. Thoroughly recommended. Thank you very much indeed, Mr. Carnick. But my point being
1: our older book is kind of looking better than it has ever looked before. But it wasn't the case that going around just sort of saying we're a climate change company, you know, don't don't waste your money on lost heat. That didn't
0: immediately turn into um, sales for us. I wish it had. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think there is a little bit, Christiana, of of just media attention on all of this, right? I mean, you know, you you, you don't you don't get because SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises are not media media worthy necessarily on their own. They could be if they if they band together or if there's some way of gathering them together. But it is big news when Apple does something or Amazon does something. So I think there's a mm, bit of kind yeah. of mind Well, share Sorry, attention. let me yeah. let me
2: say they're newsworthy. Yeah. They're not covered by the media. That's right. a different issue. Yeah. But they're definitely newsworthy.
0: They're definitely newsworthy. And but actually much of the power does come through working collectively, right? I mean, the other interesting thing is about the intersection between governments and businesses and the lobbying that takes place and the way in which that does or doesn't facilitate change. And SMEs tend to be more recipients of what happens in that rather than participants in it, which is a real shame, actually. Um, I mean, on the occasion when I have spoken to smaller businesses, you can. They are just as purpose-driven, right? And often more yeah. so. They can be much more human, right? Because they're smaller and they have deeper relationships, etc. And people really want to do the right thing. Of course, there's a different suite of benefits and challenges. They're much generally less cash rich. So they might not do things like buy nature-based solutions or be able to invest quickly.
2: And have less access to credit.
0: So they maybe can't invest in particular, um, you know, high capital items like renewable energy infrastructure or or, or other things. But my sense is that there is massive latent demand. And as we know, 95% of the economy is small and medium-sized enterprises. So we do need to expand this conversation out from just being the big companies to also being small and medium-sized enterprises as well.
2: So I think on this podcast we should take on a little homework. Okay. Which is to um, not immediately, because we will have to do our uh, our research here and talk to people. But I, I think we should devote an episode to where are small and medium enterprise companies now in the post pandemic world, faced with climate coming at them. Um, how have how have they been surviving? What what is their vision? I think we should definitely open that conversation it, it would be hugely educational for us yeah. as co-hosts as well as for the listeners.
0: And if we could find someone who runs a small business, maybe an insulation company, we could have him on as a guest. Well, I'll see if I'll ask. We find somebody
1: (laughs) on the subject. Just before we move off the large companies, I do believe that one of us is a director of a very large company called Acciona. Can I ask you, Christiana? Acciona, I believe, are involved in energy. What percentage of Acciona's business is uh, renewable or green energy?
2: Well, Axiona does two or actually three main businesses. They produce energy, they generate, they build and generate uh, electricity, all of it renewable, all of it either wind or solar. They operate in every continent in 40 countries. And they also own actually a wind turbine company, so they go all the way from the production of the technology all the way to the generation itself. They also have a branch that um, that is infrastructure. So they do heavy infrastructure, tunnels, roads, subways. Paul would call it underground. Um, the underground, yes, that's correct. The underground. Um, and they also have uh, a branch that does services so many airports are air, all the operations on the ground are serviced by accionate team
1: this is what happens when you when you have a big yeah. company it just like does a million billion different things but here Cristiana, let me ask you a question but
2: but again it's, it's also a company that is over hundred years old right
1: yeah well that you know gives you more time to get things done but here's the thing. Um you told me a little bit earlier uh, before we were recording that Axiona does 150% of its energy is renewable. And I just wanted to pick you up there on a certain questionable character to the maths. But my ultimate question is why did the why did that business focus completely on renewables? What's the what why why is there not some kind of, you know, fossil energy in there somewhere? What's the secret of that pure renewables?
2: Well, that I must say is totally Um, the vision of the current CEO. It's a family-owned company. Um, They have some shares out in the market, but mostly it's family-owned. And... uh, the current CEO when he became the CEO it was his decision to turn the company that was mostly an infrastructure company uh, infrastructure in the turn in terms of roads buildings bridges etc tunnels uh, to begin to move some of the capital over to renewable energy why because he is a total um, climate, Directed person, he understands the both the threats of climate change to business, but also to human beings, and he saw the opportunity. Um, So it was. I don't think it was an. I wasn't there when he started, but I don't think, from what I hear, that it was an easy conversation inside Acciona. He really had to work with other members of his family and with the other shareholders to do this. But it has proven to be a very interesting combination between renewable energy that ultimately is also infrastructure for them, because mm-hmm. they build these power plants, um, and uh, and more traditional infrastructure. And it's actually turned out to be very interesting to have both of those arms, because uh, at different periods in an economic cycle, they do better on one than they do on the other, and so it balances out. But it's definitely to the credit of uh, of Jose Manuel Entrecanales.
0: Which is so often the case, right? That it's always the way of... And that's, I think, partly another reason why Alan is so impressive, that he decided... And in fact, I really liked in the interview um, that he said he couldn't have done anything other than double down on this. It was so ingrained in the culture at Unilever that he had to come further forward, which I thought was really positive. Hopefully, when Jose Manuel Entrecanales leaves Axiona. That will be also true of the culture of Axiona and so many of these other businesses that are now stepping up and going further and faster. And Alan also said that that has made Unilever a magnet for talent. Mission-driven businesses are a magnet for talent in this massively competitive labor market where people are trying to get the best talent for their companies. That's a huge plus. Now, being very mindful of your birthday, Christiana, and my desire Ah. to give you a birthday present, which is a podcast under an hour. Um, I'm now yeah, going to that's appear. That my birthday <laughs> gift. I, 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 I like it. I like it. It's so the last time for 53 weeks or something. Exactly. Next year we'll do another one. Um, right. So this week uh, we have a beautiful song for you from a band called Icy Rivers. And the song is called We Don't Get More Time. Very appropriate for this one-hour-long podcast, actually. <laughs> Very appropriate. Um now they wrote to us and said that the stories about how our planet is suffering from human actions are endless. And there was an event that became a huge motivation for them in writing this song, which was when the Norwegian government gave a permit to a big company in the north of Norway to dump mine waste in a fjord. And that had a big emotional reaction from them. They see, you know, they feel they're seeing politicians all over the world repeatedly decide on things in a damaging way for nature, animals and humans. And that is heartbreaking, which was the precipitation of their artistic process that created this song. Um, They also say that the role of the artist during the climate emergency is to reflect and mirror the society we live in. The climate emergency is one of the biggest threats we've stood upon, and everyone should be doing something about it in one way or another. Artists have to use their voice and their platforms to shine a light on the emergency. It is a very beautiful piece of music. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. We're very grateful um, to Icy Rivers for providing this track, as we are to all of the artists who come on Outrage and Optimism. I hope you're enjoying the music as much as we are. And thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been a great conversation. Great to have Alan with us. Happy birthday, Christiana. Happy birthday, Christiana. Happy birthday. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.
2: Bye.
3: The sky is falling onto my head And the birds are
2: going down with it The sky is falling onto my head And the birds are going down with it With it
1: The land will not heal under my
2: feet As the last winter changes to leave The ground is sounding back, our remains What was buried now comes back again That's it melts away Can, Can you, swim you swim in your murky water? Cause it's rising as I melts away We
3: don't give a- Okay, so there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The song you just heard was We Don't Get More Time by IC Rivers. I have put a link to their social media in the show notes. Go give them a follow and listen to more of their music. Okay, I know we're getting close to an hour, but let me find out how fast I need to do these credits. Hey Siri, tell me how much time we have until I hit one hour.
2: I would hurry up if I were you. You only have a few minutes.
3: Oh, okay, uh, Outrage and Clay? Optimism is a production of Global Optimism, and it's pretty... Yes?
2: Can I make a suggestion? Yes? When you ask someone to do something for you, you should say, please.
3: Uh, wow. Uh, I, yeah, I've been bad at that lately. Um, I will, um, try to remember that. Uh, thank you for the reminder.
2: What do you want to be reminded about?
3: No, no, no. I, I was just um, I was just thanking you for reminding me about saying, please. I didn't get that. Could you try again? I did, okay, where's the button to shut this off?
2: I didn't no, get that. No, no, no. Could is you try the, again?
3: I don't have time for this. Christiana is going to be so mad.
2: Christiana Figueres okay. was the executive right. shutting, secretary this, of the
3: UNFCCC. Okay. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. An executive produced by Marina Mansilla Herman. Our team is small but mighty. It's Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, and Sharon Johnson. And our hosts are Paul Dickinson, Christiana Figueres, and Tom Rivet Karnak. Special thanks this week to musical guest I C Rivers. Go buy their music. Link in the show notes. A special thank you to Georgia Surridge for making this week's interview with Alan happen. And speaking of, thank you to our guest this week, Alan Jobe. So last week we asked you, please, if you could nominate us for the podcast awards and just wanted to thank everybody for doing that. It was amazing to hear from all of you, see your support. Um, We are shipping books out to the first 10 people who nominated us, so please check your messages. Um, Right now, at the time I'm recording this, the announcement of who is in the top 10 for the podcast awards has not been made public, but it should be made public sometime on Friday by the time you're hearing this. So stay tuned for more on that. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism. And I always forget, but you can also see us on LinkedIn. So look up Global Optimism on LinkedIn. If you love the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating take a screenshot of your review that you leave and send it to us. We'd love to see it. Okay. I think I did it in time. Next week, another episode in your feed. We'll see you then. Bye.